Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. What if we're living in a simulation and the world as we know it is not real? To tackle this mind-bending idea, acclaimed filmmaker Rodney Asher, also known for Room 237 and The Nightmare, uses a noted speech by Philip K. Dick to dive down into the rabbit hole of science, philosophy, and conspiracy theory, leaving no stone unturned in exploring the unprovable the film uses contemporary cultural touchstones like The Matrix, interviews with real people shrouded in digital avatars, and a wide array of voices, experts, and amateurs alike. The film is called A Glitch in the Matrix, and we are joined today by the director, producer, and editor, and probably writer. Are you also a writer of this as well, Ron? And that would be Rodney Asher. (laughs) Hey, Mike. Thanks for for having me. Good to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. You were kind enough to come on for Room 237, and that that documentary has scarred me to this day. I, I just <laughs> I had such a good time with it, and so I'm happy to have you back on to talk about A Glitch in the Matrix. Uh, I guess the obvious question is, how did this come about? What inspired you to make this film? Well, it's funny. I think in hindsight, it makes more sense. It, 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 it makes plenty of sense, even though it um, was sort of a circuitous road to get here. If you look at the past films, you know, we go from people struggling to understand, you know, a movie to people trying to understand things that happen in like a dreamlike state to people trying to understand the world. But that suggests that there was a plan all along. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth where, you know, I went to the nightmare because I had gone through, you know, the experience of sleep paralysis myself and had started to notice an accumulation of stories piling up on Reddit boards and YouTube videos and um, common threads whenever anybody would write an article about, about the phenomenon. And then that actually directly led to this where a person that I had been talking to about sleep paralysis mentioned they thought that the things that they would see in that heightened state of consciousness might actually be a peak beyond the simulation. And it was news to me that anybody took the idea of sort of living in a digital world like the matrix or if you prefer existence or the 13th floor seriously that i thought it was just a science fiction idea but you know soon i discovered nick bostrom's article elon musk's remarks about it at that press conference and it was uh, you know a rabbit hole that you know i couldn't i couldn't crawl out of <laughs> at a certain point one of the i would call the centerpiece of the film or the, the thing that pulls us through the story of uh, a glitch in the matrix is the speech by Philip K. Dick. Uh, by the way, I want to claim him as our own. He, he, he settled in orange County, he lived in Santa Ana uh, for the, a good part of the, the rest of his life. In this film, he, it, it sort of sets so much of it up. Uh, where did you find that? Uh, was you that had to reach out to the um, French um, archive company that if I'm not wrong, might've filmed it back in, 1977. But I found a five minute excerpt of it, you know, on YouTube that came from someone had made a feature length documentary on, on Dick and you know, used, used a short segment from it. And I was dying to find out, well, what's, what's the rest of this speech? Where does he go from here? You know, and by contacting the filmmaker and crawling through the credits, you know, our, um, our team was able to, you know, get, uh, get, the, uh, get a copy of the entirety of the speech. No, it was 
so fascinating, not just because of, you know, that little bit where he says, you know, we're in a computer controlled society, especially, I mean, think of it, he's saying this in the seventies, right? And what do right. computers look like? You know, refrigerators with blinking lights and spinning reels of magnetic tape, punch cards, and maybe at the highest extreme, you know, a game of Pong. And, you know, literally this Sundance, we, we debuted at Sundance and they have this whole virtual component. And the other night, you know, I was wearing VR goggles and talking to a critic who had seen the movie on top of a digital cartoon mountaintop uh, underneath a giant floating moon that had a bounce house on top and populated by gorillas and aliens and snails and elves. And he was a alien and I was a mummy. And, <laughs> you know, as we talked about the film and we, and we talked about this very question of uh, Philip K. Dick having this idea in the seventies that I can't imagine what field of reference would have, what, what would have inspired, you know, strictly speaking, a computer control, a, a computer create, created world, because from, our vantage point, you know, and as we were speaking literally within a computer controlled world, you can see that future from here, right? Like, and if the implication is that the quote unquote real world is somewhere out in the future and that for reasons unknown, they have simulated their past and that's what we're living in. Um, it's much easier, you know, to see that from today's point of view yeah. um, than, it, than it ever could have been in the seventies. And as I listened to the rest of the speech, you know, there was one connection after another, after another, after another to present day. So besides the fact that, you know, a lot of his stories have inspired movies that helped people get their heads around this idea, you know, if you're talking about, you know, Total Recall, perhaps. Yeah, no, that speech was, you know, a real godsend, you know, and, a, and an amazing jumping off point. And also just to back a little bit, Philip K. Dick is also responsible for uh, the story behind Blade Runner, Sure. Um, and a whole bunch of other films that we, or ideas that we take for granted now in terms of sci-fi. Well, I think, you know, someone has said, um, you know, the two big questions that you started with were what is real and what is human? You know, and Blade Runner was what is human and Total Recall is what is real. You know, I think he would come at that question, you know, from angle after angle after angle throughout his work. I think it's safe to say one of the, the most influential science fiction writers of all time. I think uh, he'd be right near the top of that that mountain if you were. And what, one thing that was interesting about watching those clips of him speaking was the reaction of the audience. And I don't I know through the magic of editing, you can make the audience appear more or less any way you would like them to, you know, look in, in a sense. But it was, it was muted, yeah, muted <laughs> and, 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 and genuinely people looking around like, what the F? Is he lost his mind? That's literally the reaction I got from watching the people in the, in the audience. So to your point, 1977, this would have sounded, you know, like Egyptian to these people in some ways. Yeah. You know, I think there's, you know, and Eric Davis does a great job. He, he was one of the editors of uh, the exegesis, you know, those 8,000 pages of, of, of writing that he did off the clock, trying to make sense of some of his experiences. You know, and Eric talks about how, above and beyond little gadgets and things that, you know, might have kind of quasi-predicted in some of the books. He did an amazing job of conjuring up the feeling of where we're at. Eric talks about, you know, a world that is constantly interrupted by pings yeah. and alerts and requests for authorization and micropayments, um, identity theft and rising uh, police state. Pretty remarkable, I think. Um, 
you know, one way that we would talk about it, you know, when we were working on the movie is he may have seemed pretty crazy in the seventies, but, you know, in some ways it's kind of patient zero of, you know, anxieties and neuroses that are much more commonplace today than they were then. Yeah. I think his grasp of human nature and also the intersection of human nature and politics was extraordinary, a real strength of his. I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Rodney Asher. He's the director of this remarkable documentary film called A Glitch in the Matrix and just premiered at Sundance and it will be in theaters virtually um, on February 5th. So this Friday, be checking this out. This word gets over, over roasted a lot. But uh, it is a mind-bending film because it's really directed right it, into the middle of your perception of not only the world you live in, but of yourself. All of us have had a moment or two in our lives where we've wondered how that happened, like how we serve. There's a couple of stories in here about how people survived extraordinary events in their life, how they opened a window into their mind about something that was beyond them call it religion, God, whatever it is. But we're always, I think, as human beings, probing the parameters of our lives and what it means to be human in some way or another, maybe some not so deeply as others do. But is that is that fair way to kind of well, rambling? You know, in some ways, put it better than, than I have when struggling to <laughs> explain what this movie is about. Let's talk about uh, the, the, the people that you brought into this conversation. Um there, Elon Musk is not an interview e in the film, but he sort of looms over our current sort of perception of what what's over the hill for us as humans. But some of these other people you mentioned, um, Nick Bostrom, and who else? Uh, who else would you? I mean, wh why did you bring these particular people into? It? Well, I mean, they, 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 the people fall into roughly two groups, although nobody ever stays firmly in one box, right? Like there's the you know called the eyewitnesses the people who are represented by the digital avatars who are folks who have, I think more or less gone through something in their life that let them, that led them to believe that we're living in a computer simulation. And, you know, they tell their stories and then they reflect upon what, what are the implications of this idea to them. And then there are, for lack of a better word, experts, people who um, we've reached out to based on so, something that they wrote or their field of expertise that really kind of can shed light on this subject from one angle or another. And those include um, Nick Bostrom, the um, philosopher who um, wrote the um, simulation hypothesis. Um, I think, oh, he, he teaches at Oxford. There's Emily Pottist, who is an artist and a writer right. who, had, who, created, who wrote this amazing um, sort of meditation on Plato's cave and putting it into perspective with, well, the me me people's media environments, right? That if Plato's cave is about prisoners who are only seeing these reflections of the world, these shadows that represent, you know, what's, what's behind them, you know, today people are seeing representations of the world coming at them through their media feeds. And depending on how accurate, you know, these feeds are and, you know, whether the people creating this media are acting in good faith, you know, these representations are, more or less accurate to the real world, but are nonetheless hugely important in the creation of, you know, the worldview of their audiences, right? There's Eric Davis, who co-edited the Philip K. Dick's exegesis and has written, you know, extensively on sort of the intersection of religion and technology. And there's a, 
Chris Ware, who um, a, a, an incredibly talented cartoonist and writer, who did this beautiful cover for The New Yorker, you know, about kids creating beautiful out, outdoor scenes in Minecraft instead of going outside to play. And then wrote a really kind of poignant essay about revisiting some of these worlds that his daughter made. And then sort of the character who doesn't quite fit into either box is Josh Cook, sort of a, a kid who, you know, be, who had, you know, many issues, many problems in his life. And, you know, in his case, that sense of alienation that can come with uh, simulation theory really led to, you know, horrifying consequences. Technology is an extension of our humanity, right? Um, the wheel is an extension of our desire to to move around. Every almost every leap in technology has been a representation of some desire in the part of human beings to do better or be better. I don't know if that's exactly accurate, but that's that's how I sort of see. You know, television was supposed to bring us all together, right? We were going to understand the world better. We were all going to we, the whole world would become clearer to us, and we'd be better off for it, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, did you? Uh, if you've read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know the story of the Babelfish. The book, and for my money, the um, original BBC um, TV series from the 80s is you know, just an intergalactic, you know, philosophical comedy um, with, with an amazing, uh, amazingly smart and funny. And there's a moment where the sort of encyclopedia, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that connects a lot of the stories, has an entry on the Babelfish, which is a, a little creature which you put in your ear and it allows you to uh, understand any language, sort of a universal translator. There was the expectation that it was going to lead to world peace when everybody could finally communicate clearly and reach one another. But, you know, yeah, the reality was was 180 degrees the, the opposite. You know, I've asked this question to uh, filmmakers like yourself regarding this story. It was, I don't know who wrote it. It was a, a fairly famous sci-fi writer who wrote a story about how God and Satan determined that they were never going to completely win over the soul of humans, that they would never be able to completely dominate the other. And so as a sort of, as a, uh, a compromise, they introduced the God of technology and said to, and, and made the agreement, well, let's see what they do with it. And that will reveal their true nature. It's a sci-fi story I read a million years ago, and I do not remember who wrote it. And that, for me, my, my North Star when it comes to explaining this stuff. We can do anything we want with what we create. It's up to us. It's, it's a neutral, morally neutral enterprise, right? And yet we choose to do everything with it, I guess. I, I guess the, the, the lesson is we're capable of anything. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know that there's necessarily a clear winner, you know, when you're talking That's about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's some moments where we talk in the film about the consequences of if everybody lived lived their lives in our world as if they were in a video game. And you can imagine that there are some kind of, you know, terrifying implications of that. But by the same token, you know, this last almost year of lockdown, you know, my 10-year-old has been able to use these games to connect with his friends, both the ones in town and the ones who've moved away. Um, and it's been a lifeline for him to stay connected to other people. Even in a game that, you know, like Fortnite, which is, you know, sort of a, a gladiatorial combat, last man standing wins. But it also works as this unbelievable tool for connection and socialization. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess I think it's bending good, but there, there's a lot of nuance in there, too. Well, my personal opinion, it's bending good because our survival depends on it. 
<laughs> at the end of the day, we want to survive. And if if the other, if the sort of the the darker elements of these technologies win, yeah. we lose. And oh, I think yeah. some of that. <laughs> well, you know, I moved to LA from Miami, and a lot of people, you know, LA traffic is famously terrible, but that wasn't my experience because coming from Miami, where the, there's not as many cars on the road, I found the um, navigating through them to be much dodgier and filled with much more hostility. But in Los Angeles, there's such a critical mass of such an unbelievable number of cars going squeezed into the road that if there wasn't cooperation, yeah. uh, a baseline of cooperation, the entire system would break down and become unusable. In the last minute or so I have with you, Rodney Asher, I want to ask you if this experience of putting this film together, along with some of the other ones you've done, but this one in particular, has swayed you, affected you? What has been sort of the impression that you've been left with? I don't want to ask you to answer that question at the risk of giving too much away about the film itself. So is there is there a way to navigate that answer without giving away the ghost here? It's tricky. I mean, I think all of these movies are much more about mysteries than they are about solutions. Yeah. And that if these were questions that I'm still puzzling after, over, uh, you know, a, a, after completing the films, then um, they probably wouldn't have been juicy enough for me to have spent the time I did making them. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'm necessarily closer to the answer, but I think just thinking about trying to define the question has, <laughs> has, has, has been helpful. And certainly has inadvertently um, connected me to um, so many more people in a way that, you know, is sometimes miraculous. It's a remarkable film because as you're watching it, it really becomes an interactive experience. You just you cannot help but but start to just ponder and think through and and it and it looks good and you get these wonderful these the people who are the avatars and are are, are it's such a wonderful cinematic experience that you've created here as well. So uh, I'll just throw in my one last comment about it sure. because I can't because I just mentioned how interactive the film is for me it was. And that is, I kept thinking about something very fundamental, going back to sort of the Buddhist philosophy of we are the world experiencing itself over and over and over again in, 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 you know, and that's what, that's what I think where we are constantly experiencing the world in all of its variations in all of us, because we are different. And I just, I just, it made me more, it made me more philosophical than it did sort of uh, trying to understand where the technology might take us. That's great. You know, um, I'm thrilled if the movie leads people to places like that. Well, I want to thank you. I'll be the one to say thank you for the film and also for your time. I just truly appreciate it. I look forward to all your work. And it's just been a, a wonderful, remarkable body of work. And a glitch in the Matrix is no exception. I want to thank you, Rodney Asher, for being here today. Right on. I appreciate that so much, Mike. It means the world to me. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.